Good morning. Can you tell me why you're here this morning? I mean, why didn't you do the natural thing this morning and turn around in your beds and sleep a little longer? There are essentially two reasons why people go to Sunday morning service. One is that you think that God is a merciful, a generous, a loving God, and you're delighted to meet God here. You're delighted to meet God's people here. The other reason is that you think that God is hard and demanding and unmerciful, and you don't like to meet him, but you're here to avoid his anger and his punishment. So either way, it depends on how you think about God. You may be happy about the invitation that stands behind the commandment, you shall keep my Sabbath holy, the invitation to come here and to meet with God, and then doing that will make your lives richer. Or you may be here just to avoid the punishment of of an angry God, the punishment for violating that commandment. And then you think about Sunday service as a sort of a, a form of imprisonment, a deprivation of your personal liberty, and you probably find the people around here annoying at best. So either way, it depends on how you think about God. Now, you all know that God gives us commandments, rules, and directives for all areas of our lives. Not only Sunday morning, our finances, our marriages, our professional lives, everything. And you can follow his commandments thinking that he's a loving God and trusting that what he says and what he wants is good for you and because you want to please him. And if this is how you approach God's commandments, then they will make your lives richer. But you can also follow his commandments because you mistrust this God and you wish to escape his anger. And if this is how you approach his commandments, they will make your life narrow and miserable. Either way, it all depends on how you think about God. And so how do you think about God? Why are you here this morning? Jesus told his disciple a parable which deals with exactly this question and where he shows us that your answer and my answer to this question is very important, important to be decisive over life and death. We find this parable in Matthew chapter 25 verses 14 to 30, Matthew 25 verses 14 to 30 and I would like to ask you to stand when I read the word of God. You know, sometimes people think I'm Catholic. I'm not. Trust me. But how how can we sit when God speaks to us? So here's what Jesus said. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man who traveled to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them, And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. 
And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you deliver to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you a ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and I gather where I have not scattered seed. Therefore you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore take the talent from him, and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has... More will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word speaks into our lives and is the guidance for our lives. And we ask you, Lord open our hearts this morning and our ears, that we hear well and we understand what you want to teach us. Have mercy on us, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. A rich man goes on a journey. He leaves his servants with no specific instructions for what they should do with his property while he is abroad. Upon his return... He demands an account from every servant and wants to cash in any profit they made. Two servants made a profit, and the master pays them a wage. One gained nothing, and the master punishes him severely for that. Such is the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus. A rich man goes on a journey. As he leaves... He entrusts his property to his servants. Upon his return, he wants to see what they did with it. Two of them had boldly and confidently invested what their master had entrusted to them and had gained a good profit. Now, at this point, you want to understand some Greek background. The Greek word for gain means to create something, to create something new. 
And the word for interest originally means birth. New creation and birth is the context of what's being said here. So these two servants receive a rich reward for their diligence and faithfulness. Their master allows them to keep what he had entrusted to them and what they had gained. He invites them to enter into his joy, that is, to be part of the big party, the celebration of his return. One servant had not used his master's property in a fruitful way. He let it lie in the ground wastefully. He's thrown out of the house. Such is the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus. So here we have two ways to tell the same story. First way to tell this story focuses on the master's greed of gain, on the master's demand for, of, for an account of his servants, on wages and punishment. This master is a hard man and he knows no mercy. The second way to tell the same story focuses on trust, confidence, creative generation of wealth, diligence, faithfulness of the servants, joy and generosity on the part of the master. Two ways to tell the same story. And the difference between these two ways is so large that we want to turn to Jesus and say, now Jesus, what is the kingdom of heaven like? And you know what? Jesus would just smile at you and say, it depends. It depends on you. So the master leaves the first servant with five talents. Now, you have to understand that in the times of Jesus, a talent is a pretty large fortune. A talent was the common price of a Greek merchant ship. That's a pretty big investment, a merchant ship at the time. A talent was the equivalent of 20 annual wages. So that's pretty much your lifetime earnings. That's what one talent is. And this guy receives five talents. It's a big fortune. So the master himself later says, you have been faithful in little. Five talents, and to the master, that's little. That says, this master must be very rich. The second servant obtains two talents, that's still a lot, and the third one obtains one, and that's still a pretty large fortune. Each servant is given according to his ability. So here is a master who knows his servants very well, and he knows exactly what is each servant's ability and how much he can entrust to them, how much he can expect of each one of them. Now, the master in this story is the Lord God, the Father, who is indeed exceedingly rich in his glory and greatness. And so the parable tells us that God knows his people intimately. He knows exactly what your abilities are. He knows exactly what he can demand from you. Okay? The kingdom of heaven is not like the People's Republic of China under Mao, where everybody had a blue suit, well, a blue uniform, I should say, and so they all looked alike, okay? All differences were leveled. That's not the kingdom 
of God. Different people have different abilities, and God knows that, and he knows how much he can entrust, entrust to each person and how much he can expect from each person. So the master entrusts a part of his property to his servants, and he wants them to work with that in order to make a gain. Now, he doesn't say so explicitly, but from the flow of the story, we learn immediately that this is what the servants understood. And so what that tells us is that it is the character of the master that he wants to see fruit, that he wants to see his property multiply. And so, therefore, the first and the second servant immediately go to work. Now, what would you have done? Master goes away. Um, If I were in this story, I would first have taken a day off, right? Master goes away. Let's stay in bed. That's not what these guys do. They go immediately to work. They knew that there was no time to lose in order to make profit as large as possible so that their master would be as happy as possible. Jesus doesn't tell us anything about the kind of business these guys engaged in, but we see later from the response of the third servant that it must have been risky business. Neither does Jesus say that the first two were immediately successful. It's very well possible that initially they made some losses, which then later they recovered, Or that they started pretty successfully and then had some setbacks and lost something and then, again, made good for it. The important thing is that in the end, they both had 100% profit. God entrusts part of his property to his people. This is a theme which we find from the beginning of the Bible. Already in the creation account, we read that God created a garden and then he put Adam and Eve in it to keep it and to work in it and to be fruitful. And the point was not that Adam and Eve needed occupation. The point was that God wanted his creation to bring fruit. God wants his creation to bloom, to grow, to multiply. And that says... God, the creator, is pleased with his creation, and he can't get enough of it. He wants to see it grow and, and multiply. Read the first book of Moses. One of the most frequent words is the word multiply. That says something about God. Why did God create Adam and Eve as man and woman, husband and wife? Not simply so that they could have sex, but so that they could multiply. And in that act of multiplying, share God's joy of growth and multiplication. And then later we read that God gives a whole country to his people where they can live according to his word and thereby be fruitful and multiply so that they become as numerous as the sand on the, sea, on the seashore. Jesus gives the whole world to his disciples, commanding them to go and make more disciples. The church is to grow and to multiply. The whole word of God tells us that he is delighted to see his people and his property do well and grow. 
You know, sometimes I hear people say, Ah, how is it possible to have children in this world? You know what? Only godless people can ask such an absurd question. God wants his creation to grow, to do well, to multiply. Martin Luther once said, If I knew that tomorrow... Time is over and the world will come to an end. I would plant an apple tree today. Well, not because he wanted to eat apples in eternity. But because when God came, he wanted to be ready and have fruit in his hands. So that God would be delighted. So the point of the parable is not that God is greedy of profit. After all, he is already infinitely rich. The point is that God is delighted when his creation bears fruit. The point is that he wants his servants to invest what he has given to them so that the investment brings fruit and they can share in his joy of creation. Now, the first two servants obviously understood that. And so they go to work to make their master happy. And that means they must have incurred the risk of losing some, perhaps much, perhaps all of what their master had given to them. Anybody here who is in business, raise your hand. Okay. If you are, and probably if you aren't, you know that where there is no risk, there is no gain. Everybody knows that. It's the first law of business. Now, if this is true, then the servant's readiness to go to work and engage in risky business tells us something very important about their attitude towards their master, about their way, how they thought about their master. Because they must have been aware of the possibility that they could lose what the master had given to them. It was risky business. They could lose their talents. And if they engaged in growth-producing business nevertheless, they must have had an idea of what would happen if the master came back and and they would present him a loss. They would say, look, you gave me five talents, but sorry, market was bad, and I lost three. And clearly, they must have trusted in their master's grace And mercy in that case. They must have been sure that when he came back and and saw that their investment had produced a loss, he would nevertheless acknowledge their work for his interest and reward them for that. And so if they their thinking was if they made a profit, that would be great, and they would receive a reward from their master. But if they made a loss, that would also be okay, and the master would also reward them for that. And so the natural thing of thinking about their master in that way, the natural thing was to go to work, find a risky investment, and do it. Okay? Their diligence, their readiness to work hard, to incur risk, was grounded in their trust in their master's righteousness and goodness. Now, the third servant was totally different. The third servant did not trust his master. He knew equally well 
that his master expects fruit and gain from him, he knew equally well that in order to obtain that, he had to go and work hard and incur risk, but he had no faith in his master's righteousness nor in his mercy. He thought that when the master comes back, his master being a hard man, when he comes back and he made a profit, the master would take it all and he has nothing. But if the master comes back, he thought, and he made a loss, the master would punish him for that. And so, if he goes to work, he's left with nothing. If he goes to work, makes a profit, it's even worse. So, what do you do? You do nothing. You hide the talent in the ground where it wastes away. Therefore, that's obviously what he thought. It did not pay for him to go to work. Not expecting any good, he didn't even consider bringing the money to the bank where it would have earned a small interest. Obviously, he didn't care a bit about his master's joy of fruit and gain. And this servant only has one problem. The problem is that his master doesn't let him off the hook with that behavior and that thinking. When the master came back, the servant was punished severely for his laziness and his unfaithfulness. Now, Every parable has a scandal. Every parable has a point which is supposed to shock us. And the scandal in this parable is the master treats each servant exactly the way the servant thinks of him. The first two servants think that the master is good and righteous and merciful and therefore they confidently invest And when the master comes back, that's exactly what they experience. The master is righteous and merciful and generous. He who trusts God and invests the treasure God has entrusted to him will eventually gain a profit and share in God's joy about that. Such is the kingdom of God, says Jesus. But those who mistrust God and regard him as a as a man or a person with a hard heart, one for whom it doesn't pay to go to work and incur risk, those will be punished relentlessly and thrown out of God's presence. He who does not trust in the goodness and mercy of God will invest nothing and lose everything. Such is the kingdom of God, says Jesus. It all depends on how you think about God. That God will demand an account of his people is one of the basic principles of the Bible. Jesus frequently spoke of the judgment of God. If you read this parable in the context, Matthew 24 and 25, those two chapters have a long discourse of Jesus. And this discourse begins with Jesus' announcement of the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem his announcement of the end of times, and his call to us to be watchful, to be careful and diligent because no one knows the hour when this will happen. And his discourse ends with the announcement of the judgment in which Jesus will eternally separate the lambs from the goats, the blessed of God from the cursed ones, those who have done good during their lives, from those who haven't done good 
during their lives. So we have the call to watch and we have the announcement of the judgment and in the middle of this, we find this parable. And this position tells us something. It says part of our being watchful, part of our being careful because we don't know when the Lord will come back, part of being that is to be very watchful over how we think about God, to watch our thoughts, to consider our thoughts about God. And at the other end, this position of the parable says, and the way how you think about God will determine where you're going to end up in the judgment. So we must be careful with our thoughts about God. We must not allow any doubts in the goodness of, and mercy of God to creep into our minds because that will make us lazy and waste what God has given to us. We must cultivate our trust in God our conviction that he is good and merciful and just so that our faith in him stays alive and grows and we end up on the right side of the last judgment. So the principle is this. If you think that God is a loving and merciful God, then that will have an effect on your behavior. You will be able to incur risk trusting in God You will be able to work with the treasure God has given to you, and you will experience that your labor and your investment will bear fruit. Now, this is not a promise of financial success. It's not a promise of good health forever. It is a promise of a life which is worth living in the eyes of our Lord. God will be delighted of you and will show you his mercy. But if you think that God is hard and mean and unmerciful, that will also have an effect on your behavior. You will hide out of fear everything God has given to you and let it waste away. God will be angry with you and give you no part in his joy. And so he who does not trust cannot gain. He who trusts gains a treasure. He who thinks wrongly of God loses everything. He who thinks rightly of God gains a life and great joy. And therefore, watch what you think about God. Watch why you are here this morning. Now, you may want to ask, but what kind of treasure has God given to me? Has God left a talent in my hands? The answer is that God has given to every one of us two talents, two treasures to work with and invest. Two treasures which can yield fruit and profit bountifully if you invest faithfully what God has given to you. The first treasure is God's word, his commandments, his rules for your life. And the other treasure is God's people. God's commandments and rules, God's law is a treasure. The Bible says so frequently, Psalm 119, your law is my treasure. Or Psalm 19, your law and your statutes are more desirable than fine gold. Now, you may think that's Old Testament, okay? That doesn't apply to us anymore because we have Jesus. But you see, Jesus taught us very differently. 
at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Which means I came to fill the law with meaning, to show you the full meaning of the law. Jesus shows us what it means, what the law means in in all its fullness, and it means a life in complete trust in God and complete dependence on God. So if you want to know what the law means to you, just look at Jesus. My son has this little bracelet, WWJD. What would Jesus do? And the idea is whenever he doesn't know what's going on, what he should do, he looks at the bracelet and he thinks, oh, what would Jesus do? In the middle of the same sermon, Jesus says, you are to be perfect because your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, if you're like me, you're always looking for a standard that's achievable. Okay? I like to compare myself with my neighbor who beats his cat. Because I don't do that, so I'm better than he, right? Well, Jesus says your standard should be God. And you know from the beginning that's a standard that you will never achieve. You don't even have the slightest chance. And then at at the end of the same sermon, Jesus says, only those who do the will of God will enter the kingdom of heaven. Everybody else is like the man who built his house on the sand, and when the rain came, it was washed away. And what is the will of God for our lives? It's all in his law. God's commandments are directives for a good law for a good life, for a life that he delights in. And that is certainly true for us today. His commandment, you shall keep my Sabbath holy, sets us free. One day every week, free from the coercion and duty to work, and it gives us this day to enjoy the company of God's people and the community with our Lord. That makes our lives rich. And the same is true, the same principle is true for all other commandments. They relieve us from the necessities and the constraints of the normal world. They open up space for good. They open up space for loving relationships. If we all refrain from slandering and giving false witness of others, we can be a community of people who deal honestly with one another. Isn't that beautiful? If we all refrain... If we all refrain from adultery, we can be a community where men and women can meet and the women don't have to feel vulnerable. Isn't that beautiful? If we all refrain from stealing, we can stop worrying about stuff and focus on people and their needs. God's law is a treasure for us. And we work with this treasure and invest it by making his law the guideline of our daily lives. And you know, that's hard work. Because you keep asking yourself constantly, what would Jesus do at this moment? And it's risky. 
Because anyone who takes God's word seriously will end up living completely different from the rest of the people around himself. And so other people will ridicule him, laugh at him, and maybe even oppose him violently. Where other people have four cars, he may end up having four children. A life according to the law of God is possible only if you trust in the mercy and providence of God. Because not to work on Sunday requires the trust that what God lets you do on the six other days of the week is enough. It's enough. And the same is true with all other commandments. To live according to the law of God means to give up control over your life. Do we do that? Are we ready to give up control over our lives? It depends. It depends on how you think about God. Only if you think that God is merciful and good, you can take that risk and give up control. Only if you think that God is righteous and full of grace, you can risk submitting to a standard of, of which you know from the beginning it's exceedingly high. I will never make it. And yet, I take that as the standard of my life because I believe that God is merciful. Only if you're completely sure that your salvation is in the mercy and the love of God and Jesus Christ and that it doesn't depend on how well you fulfill the law. Only then can you take that risk and accept his law as an invitation to a good and happy life. The promise is that everybody who does that will make the experience that the law of God is a treasure and yields much gain. Happy is the man who delights in the Lord's commandments, Psalm 112. And that will be a life which attracts other people. And that brings us to the other treasure that God has given us. And I want you to do me a favor. Could you please get up and turn around once? Just once. People, what you see is God's treasure box. Everyone in this room is a treasure in the eyes of God. You may be seated. <laughs> a treasure in the eyes of God. A treasure that God has entrusted to you to work with it and invest it. And how do you do that? By loving these people. And not only these people, but also your neighbors and your friends and your colleagues and your fellow students and whoever God puts in front of your face. Love which puts their well-being above your own. Ephesians 2 says that God has prepared a multitude of opportunities for you to do good, to comfort people in distress, to strengthen the weak, to visit the sick, to help those in need, to invite strangers. All the things Jesus talks about when he talks about the last judgment. We invest this treasure by taking responsibility for other people. And that is hard work. It requires time, it requires effort, and it is risky. Loving another person 
requires that you open up to him. And he may not love you back. That makes you vulnerable. Loving others means that you take sides with the weak. And the danger is that the weak exploit you and the strong oppress you. That's why it's risky. Loving other people means to give up the control over our lives. Do we do that? It depends on how we think about God. Only if you think that God is a good and loving, you will look for opportunities to give his love to other people. And when others react to that and turn to God, that is the fruit that God enjoys and that makes your life rich. Only if you rely firmly on God's loving provision for yourself, you can put your own well-being below that of other people. If you take responsibility for another person, you will necessarily become guilty of him. There's no other way. Parents know what I'm talking about. We love our children. We educate them and raise them as best as we can. And yet, we're sure to be guilty of them because they're not what we dream of. They're not what we think. The other person will always remain the other. And therefore, we're sure to wrong the other, even if we love him. And only if you know that God is merciful and forgives us, you can risk taking responsibility out of love for another person. So two treasures God entrusts to us, his word and his people, two treasures which are related to each other. We need brothers and sisters who lovingly help us accept God's invitation to a good and rich life under his law. We need brothers and sisters who help make God's law, help us make God's law the standard of our daily life. And where this happens, the community of believers becomes ever more beautiful, ever more attractive, and multiplies. And this can happen only if we take loving responsibility for one another as brothers and sisters. If you think that God is mean and hard and unmerciful, you will surely take his law to judge others and to make yourself look superior to them. If you think that God is good and merciful and loving, you will not abandon your brothers and sisters seeing that there is sin in some parts of their lives. You will admonish them. You will correct them, not in order to show that you're better, but in order to bring them into the kingdom of God. You will not threaten them with punishment, but encourage them to trust God not to do that, not to correct your brother or your sister, would be cold indifference. Terrible indifference. The opposite of love. To admonish them and to correct them is risky. Because they might punch you right into your face if you do that. But if you trust in the love and goodness of God, I'm sure you can take that risk knowing that your brother and sister is a precious treasure of God 
and that God desires to see fruit in your life and in their lives. So God entrusts his word and his people to us. And we have to make a decision. We can let these treasures lie waste. And that would be the ultimate and sure proof that you have no trust in God. Or we can apply God's law to our lives and we can take loving responsibility for his people. And that would be the ultimate and sure proof that you trust in God. God will forgive us all mistakes we make in that process. He will celebrate his joy with us, even if what you have gained is quite small. So trust in God, and you will invest the treasures he has given to you, even if the risk is great. And then one day God will say to you, Well done, you good and faithful servant. Come, I will give you much more and enter into my joy. He who trusts God will gain a treasure. Such is the kingdom of heaven. Amen.